You are listening to the Twibbly Podcast, or This Week Was Way Better Last Year. Comedy podcast looking back at This Week in History. You can find us on Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Podbean, or wherever you like to get your podcasts from. You can find us and or message us over on Facebook and Instagram using TWWWBLY. Welcome back to Twibbly, or this week was way better last year. My name is Bill with one L. With me is that admission from Gad. It's Jeff McLarge-Huge. <laughs> hey, everybody. God sent me for your toast, your dry white toast. <laughs> What's going on? How are you? I am cold, Bill. <laughs> I'm cold today, and I'm smelly, but I'm mostly cold now. Let me tell you why, because my is water that- heater, my water heater broke. Ooh. And it has been now five days. Oh, no. That I have not had hot water in my abode. That's gross. Because the part needed to fix my water heater is apparently made in North Korea. Oh. Or possibly the Andaman Islands, which have no <laughs> So I'm not sure how long I'll be either smelling bad or shivering like I have the plague. But it's one of those two things. I had a hot water heater incident about maybe seven years ago. There was a pinch... In the gas line, you know how the earth is constantly moving, right? So there was this big-ass rock that, like, shifted and then, like, pinched my gas line. So there wasn't enough gas getting into the house to keep the pilot for the hot water heater lit. So that caused problems. Yeah. So I'd be fine. And then all of a sudden I'm taking these ball-shrinking cold showers. And I'd go downstairs and I'd read, like, the pilot and that's cool. And then all of a sudden... Th- it's out, and then I'm, you know, I'm back into uh, Raisin Land. Right, right, right. Yeah. So that was a that was a thing. Me is uh, mine has because it's a propane fired uh, water heater. It has a thing on top of it, which is called uh, an exhaust blower. So it's like a, a motor mm-hmm. with an impeller fan that blows actively blows the exhaust out. And if the impeller fan isn't spinning, the pilot, the electric pilot, won't light the gas. So it you have not. I, I really hope you have nicknamed it Vlad the Impeller. <laughs> I have. So on Friday last okay. week, it sounded like a B-17, which is unusual. Saturday, I could hear the fan all the way up in the third floor of my house. Jesus. And then on Sunday, it sounded like a rock tumbler, which is never <laughs> a good sound to hear on any appliance that you have. But it sounded like a combination of a rock tumbler and a 74 Pinto with a thrown rod. And by Monday morning, I guess Monday morning, it wasn't spinning enough to trip the safety switch to turn on. So the plumber came to visit me, charged me 180 bucks to tell me it needs the blower. And I said, I told the lady that I called about this issue, that it was the blower and asked her specifically if you had one on the truck. And she said, yes. (laughs) Apparently, no. It's on its way here from Pyongyang or North (laughs) Sentinel Island. They're making it. They're making one. Yeah. So uh, do they have a delivery date? I mean, I have heard... Not a peep from these plumbers <laughs> since Monday afternoon. I didn't even hear a rumor of what it might be. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I'm starting to just ask random people. Hey, have you heard anything about my water heater? What's the word on the grapevine? 
I'm gonna call it the Psychic Friends Network. See if uh, Miss Cle- yes. Miss Cleo Ms. has a Cleo line Cleo. on it. Yeah. All right. So uh, before we get the show started, we got the trivia question for the week. Uh, this is gonna be a little, uh, a little very specified. But do you remember the Steve Martin movie, The Man with Two Brains? I do. Great movie. Um, yeah, it was pretty funny. I remember it being pretty funny. There were some really good visual gags in that flick. Yes. Uh, I, I remember loving that movie. Uh, mm-hmm. What I don't remember is the name of the brain in the jar. Wait, you remember that, don't you? I do. That's Anne Mahelmahay. Mahelmahay, yes. yes. Uh, but what I don't remember is who did the voice for it because she Ooh. was she was uncredited. Oh, now, so you, Anne Mahelma, who the hell knows? Yes, right, yes. Anne Mahelma was voiced by somebody, actually somebody very famous. And oh. that is today's trivia question, and I will give you the answer now, later. The other woman in that film, that was Kathleen Turner, right? She was yes. his... Into okay, the mud, I'm scum queen. slowly putting the film together in my brain here like Frankenstein's monster. Right. So, all right, so the answer will be later on in the show, but... Oh. The answer is also hidden within the tapestry of the show. Is it really? Yes, it is. All right. So this is going to be the week starting November the 2nd, and you are going to start. Hit it. In 1947, Howard Hughes, who was pulled in front of Congress about cost overruns and had put his own money into flying this, building this gigantic plane, took the Spruce Goose and a bunch of reporters out to taxi along Taxi, it was a giant flying boat was to, uh, to taxi along the, the shoreline and instead flew for one mile, three miles, I think. I think it was three miles and then landed again. And the Spruce Goose never flew after that. It was dismantled and put away. And it was sort of to prove a point that you could build a gigantic monstrous flying boat out of wood and it would it would be something that you could fly. As you know, Howard Hughes, he was a, an aviation pioneer. He was a crazy person, is what he was. He was a crazy person. And you can actually watch the film of him with nobody realizing that he's going to take it up, lift the the, uh, the spruce goose off the water and fly for that, that one or that three miles and then put it back down. And you, you'll see, you can see films of the reporters like grabbing onto things because they, they all think they're, they're going to die. <laughs> it's, it's really cool. That's a. Uh... <laughs> There was a a, a a funny like bit where like somebody won a contest where Gary Busey was gonna like take them out and like Gary Busey just like showed up in a car and was like get in and then they like drove off at Gary Busey man you gotta be like pretty all set with your life if you're gonna get in a car with Gary <laughs> Busey and that's how these people on the by the way, Spruce Goose is a great name um, that, that's how those people must have been when, like Howard Hughes must have just been like. I, I'm just picturing Gary Busey in the Howard Hughes story, like, come on, get in, guys. And then, and then flying for three miles and uh, everybody just fighting for the bathroom, essentially. Right. It's amazing to watch. It's really, really something else. And like the before he gets in the plane, like when he's in when he's in front of Congress, having an answer for the cost overruns for this stupid plane, mm-hmm. he says, like, basically, like, hey, I've got half my fortune put into this. You know, at the time, it the, the plane itself cost $21 million, which adjusted for inflation is something like almost a I don't know, two hundred million, maybe half now, a billion. When he showed up in Congress, was Howard Hughes in his "I don't change out of my pajamas" mode yet? Because that no, would have been nope. freaking nope. amazing, just showing nope. up in Congress in his PJs. 
No, in this, when he showed up in front of Congress, he still looked like a very kind of gaunt uh, Walt Disney. Is sort of what he looked like. He looked like somebody who'd been up for a long time trying to figure out how to get this plane off the ground, and that's what snapped him. And then after that, he went off to become like the the guy who looks like the the wizard in uh, Santa Claus is Coming to Town. <laughs> um, the winter like wizard, the Winter Warlock. That's his name. Um, Howard Hughes, like famously, was like uh, like like I keep making references to him going kind of a little mazo towards the end. There, he was a crazy germaphobe. He was constantly washing his hands. Mister Burns. A lot uh, from The Simpsons. A lot of these yep. his eccentricities is actually based on Howard Hughes, yep. and um, one of my favorite Howard Hughes stories. Um, and I know this because my uh, my cousin uh, actually used to work there. There was a casino called the Silver Slipper in Las Vegas, and out in their you know parking lot there was a you know the marquee, and on top of the marquee was a giant silver slipper that would rotate. Now, Howard Hughes, across uh, town or across the way, owned a penthouse. And at certain times of the night, the light would reflect off of the silver slipper as it was rotating. And it would, you know, bounce into his penthouse. So to take care of this problem, he bought the silver slipper casino and have and had the uh, the sign and marquee and rotating slipper dismantled so it wouldn't you know, shine it to his uh, penthouse. Well, it's, you know, I've, I've made some spite purchases before, but nothing of that magnitude. Okay. Here's you know? the thing. One, a new penthouse probably would have been cheaper and right. two, even cheaper than that curtains, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And he could, he had enough money. He could have designed like really good curtains too, you know, sure, the spruce, yeah. the spruce goose of curtains, $21 yeah. million. Uh, and they only close half the window and he only uses them once. Or but, a series of mirrors around town that would reflect the light elsewhere. <laughs> he's he's pretty much the closest. Well, I guess except for now we have Elon Musk, but he's probably the closest that we had to somebody who could have, with the right prodding, become an actual supervillain if he wanted to. <laughs> I I like my mirror <laughs> instead of idea. instead of buying casinos and ripping down a silver slipper, he could have been like, "That's it, doomsday yeah. weapons for everyone." You know, there's so many options other than that. Right. Right. Yep. Talk about, I mean, there's an old saying if the, you know, Mohammed doesn't go to the mountain. So, <laughs> yeah, then there he is. All right. So let's, uh, let's move on. The, November 3rd, 1976, the horror movie Harry, which is based on a novel by Stephen King, which is also the first novel by Stephen King. That's right. Uh, yep. So that's pretty cool. Think about that. You're a writer. And the first thing, you know, the first big thing that you write Ends up getting published. That's not not only published, but um, I shouldn't say the first thing you write gets published. But the first book that you wrote that gets published gets turned into a major motion picture and a damn good one, too. That's a great movie. It, it is a it is a really good film. Sissy Spacek is probably at her best. A great film about terrible parenting and don't pour blood on the psychic teenager movies, which yep. sort of became like a, a subgenre in and of its own in the 70s. <laughs> I don't, I'm not, the, not so much the don't pour blood part, but definitely the psychic teenagers who are social outcasts and can kill you with only a look. If it's not John Travolta's first movie, it's definitely one of his first movies. I, too, I think yeah. it is his first movie. And yep. uh, yeah, and Amy Irving, I think she was married to Steven Spielberg at one point. She was in it. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. 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 PJ Souls uh, is in this movie as well. Uh, she plays Norma Watson. 
Uh, uh, PJ PJ Souls, our our friend from uh, Rock and Roll High School, and she was also and Halloween, yeah. And, yeah, and she Halloween. yeah, she's one of the she's like one of the mean girls in the yes. in Carrie. Anyway, yes, great film, great film, and a, and a fun genre that seems to have 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 gone by the wayside in modern horror. But I'm sure that it will come back because it seems to sort of come back about every 20 years or so. Right. Uh, this one was directed by Brian De Palma. Yep. There was a made-for-TV remake, which wasn't bad. There was a sequel called Carrie 2, The Rage, which also wasn't bad. Right. And then they made a remake with Chloe Grace Moretz. Julianne Moore plays the mother. And she oh, was okay. she was the best part about that movie. Uh, my biggest problem with that remake that they came out with was casting that Chloe girl because Carrie, well, Sissy Spacek is very thin and kind of she's kind of she's not an ugly girl, but she's right. kind of she's kind of odd looking. Yes. Okay. You know? She's got she she doesn't have classic beauty features. Chloe Grace Manette was the prettiest girl in the freaking school in the remake. Yeah. It's like why are you getting bullied? In the book, yeah. Car- in the book, Carrie's actually short and fat. Right. Yeah, I don't know. Again, it's uh, as films get remade for. Mo- I'm making air quotes when I say modern, but modern audiences, mm-hmm. and either they get softened because the age demographic that people expect them to go see them is between the ages of 12 and 15 or something. Right. That they tend to go with whoever the most popular actress in that set or actor in that set is, which is why right. you end up with. Chloe Grace Moretz as as Carrie, and not someone who looks more like the character from the book or the character from the original film. Sure. Well, another and, yet another reason. Yep. I do not watch remakes. That closing sequence in the original Carrie with the multi camera angle that kind of like it's like a picture in a picture, and it kind of like yeah. s- like slides across and all that. That whole you know revenge scene is awesome. If I was going to go down a list of top 10 scenes in horror movies that scene is just phenomenal the way it was shot De Palma is a fantastic filmmaker so yes uh, Carrie also is one of the first horror movies to have that ambiguous ending right where you know there's the grave and Susan Snell goes to visit and you know this graffiti on the grave this is like burning hell Carrie and all that and Susan right. Snell was Carrie's only friend and then the hand just pops out of the grave and grabs her. And right. now they, you can't have a horror movie without an ambiguous ending. Right, right. I mean, yeah, uh, I'm right there with you. And, and that ending kind of got copied, sort of, in Friday the 13th. And Halloween. The original one. And Halloween. And God knows what else. Well, so. I mean, not Hall- I mean, that Halloween's ambiguous ending is the body was just missing. But it's not there, yeah. What you're saying in, ha- in Friday the 13th, yeah, with Jason popping out of the lake. Yeah, right. it is well, It is yep. a very close callback to the ambiguous ending of Carrie. And I've said right. ambiguous far too many times. I've reached my limit <laughs> for the show. That may be our word of the day, everybody. I, I hit my quota of uh, using the word ambiguous. So let's oh, move ooh. on to the okay. next uh, The next segment or the next uh, the next day November the ah, 4th okay. what do you got so if you are a mystery and or archaeology fan who and or like really? weird conspiracies uh, 1922 Howard Carter and his team discovers the tomb of Tutankhamun in Egypt hmm. whereupon opening it he's told not to open it because it's cursed and that everybody that opens the tomb will die for you layman Tutankhamun is better known as King Tut okay born continue. in Arizona uh, born in Arizona and moved to Babylon. Moved to Babylon. Yep. Got a, a condo, condo made of stone. Yep. <laughs> Buried with a donkey. King King Tut's tomb is opened, 
And Howard Carter, I'm not sure if he died, but a whole bunch of the people that were there did. They all succumbed to mysterious illnesses over the next few months. Treasure discovered there has has been touring museums pretty much ever since. And it's one of the rare graves that was opened and had been unmolested by grave robbers for a couple of thousand years. Yeah. So it's really interesting. And it made the basis for a fantastic uh, Steve Martin song. Yes. Funky oh. Tut. <laughs> Disco Tut. Um, you know what's interesting about Tutankham is they did like, you know, more recently, because they couldn't do it in 1972, but more recently, they did like DNA testing and stuff like that. And his parents were more more than likely brother and sister. Yeah, that's always tough on Mother's Day and Father's Day and Christmas. So. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't know how they figured that out. I guess, you know, King Tut had ostrich feet or something. But. <laughs> he probably had some some genetic markers that they were able to capture and say like, oh, this only happens if there's a significant amount of inbreeding or he has some sort of um, skeletal malformation that is caused by relentless inbreeding, which has happened right up until the I guess last year, no, but uh, it was always documented in, in the in like the royal families of Europe as we got closer to the modern age. Now, I mean, that was fairly common practice back then, I guess, too. Right. Frowned upon now. Uh, <laughs> you nice to your sister. You're going to marry her someday. <laughs> All right. So uh, moving on to November the 5th, 2007. Uh, the Android phones are first introduced at the time. They were actually known as the Google phones. Right. And uh, the, the, the operating system was uh, you know, on, put out to rival the uh, very popular iPhone. It was, uh, you know, it was basically to give an alternative to people that didn't want an iPhone. There has been the Coke and Pepsi wars of cell phones with the iPhone and the Android phones or the Google phones ever since. And that's, uh, that's true. Google bought the manufacturer of Motorola specifically to release their own phone system, their own phone, when that became the G1, the first version released in, in uh, 2007. Yep, I had that first, one, actually. Yep, with the first Android operating system on it. And then they realized they could make a ton of money if they licensed the operating system out to other manufacturers and other carriers. Mm-hmm. So that's how you end up with HTC and Motorola, LG, pick any Sony, and pick any of the other manufacturers that are out there. Right. And uh, at, yeah, at that time... The iPhones, which are still only made by Apple, hence the i. Uh, but at that time, I remember for the longest time, if you had an iPhone, you had to be on AT&T. Yeah, they had, a, they had a single carrier for the first six months. And then that changed after that. What the big draw for the Android, the licensed Android phones were, was that they worked across a litany of different hardware configurations. So carriers could scale their phone offerings instead of having to sell a $700 iPhone version number one. They could sell a $350 something something, a $380 something something with slightly better specs, a $450 something something with even better specs, etc. until they get up to something that has as many features as the iPhone does with updating the operating system automatically and through carrier pushes, it made it easy to update all of those phones. And they were cost effective enough that people wouldn't mind turning them in and getting new ones every couple of years. So it was the Android operating system that you can really thank for that, the way that cell phone carriers manage their phone inventory now and the update cycle. And that's one of the things that makes Android even today. You know what I always like too is that like whenever there's a new feature on the iPhone, they act like they invented the wheel. Big one a couple of years ago, like, oh, with facial recognition. 
You're going right. to lock your phone by looking at it. I'm like, yeah, I could do that like five years ago with my phone. Yes, there's a, there's an, a running joke now that with all the Worldwide Developers Conference uh, folks that is like, they're, oh, Apple's going to announce some Android features <laughs> that we've had for, for five or six years. I remember the big one was um, the ability to talk on the phone and do other applications at the same time, mm-hmm. which I had I never had an, an an Android that couldn't do that, right. but it was only the some of the more recent. I think it might have been like the iPhone five or the iPhone four right. was the first one that that could multitask while you were on the phone. Otherwise, it Twibly does not endorse or support choosing <laughs> one phone or the other. Do whatever makes you happy. Don't come at me. Buy Landline 1.0. It's connected to the wall, and you can't walk around. All right, so let's move on to the 6th. What do you got? Oh, November 6th is cool because it's a three-way TV weirdness, uh, convergence of awesomeness. November 6th, 1936, RCA displays the television for the very first time for the press. This is before it rolls out to be sold to the masses. And, of course, as we all know, television's rolled out and changed the nature of entertainment in the United States and the world. It was something like a two-inch screen, too. It was something that was like... Size of, it was like a saltine. It was very small. And and I think the first image broadcast over that kind of TV was an image of Felix the Cat. So the first thing ever sent on TV was effectively a cartoon, even though it was a static image. But again, this was the, the first device that was carrying a live picture from somewhere else and displaying it on this little tiny screen. Can you imagine like going back, getting the DeLorean, go back in time and to be there for that? It's like, okay, guys, look at this monumental thing. And then they unload this box. There's a screen about the size of, like I said, a saltine. And then there's a right. picture of Felix, a grainy, blurry picture of Felix the cat. And I could just see like one of the executives like, well, who be freaking sh**? <laughs> yes. I'm going back to um, work. It was. It's interesting in that the release after that is what changed. What sort of changed the world? So as these first televisions rolled out, they were all black and white. They were humongous, giant pieces of furniture. As I'm sure you remember, up until the 1980s and 90s, uh, the screens were more rounded than they are now, based on the way that uh, they understood CRTs to work then. And then in 1966, November 6th, 1966, NBC produces its first full lineup of televised programs that are all. Produced and broadcast in color. So up until 1966, there was a mix of color TV and black and white television that was distributed. And I think before 1954, it was all black and white. I was actually just watching something because the Jetsons was actually one of the first television programs that was all in color. And right. it didn't last very long. The Jetsons were only like uh, in uh, its original run was only on for like two years. Right. And the reason why it got canceled was there weren't really a lot of televisions that were in color and there actually weren't even a lot of television stations that were broadcasting in color. So the Jetsons in black and white just wasn't cutting it, you know? So yeah, the Jetsons were ready for this ahead of their time. (laughs) So jump ahead from 1966 to November 6th of 2001 and sort of what defines sort of modern television for innovation and storytelling and special effects and whatever the tv show 24 premieres on fox wow so 1936 to 1966 to 2001 get Kiefer sutherland preventing the world from being destroyed by terrorists on fox natural evolution of of entertainment right there and then, yeah and Kiefer, Kiefer sutherland defines the all-nighter right exactly i like i like that show i i, I like the first season the second season was cool third seasons after a while because it's like always 24 episodes right in kind of real time it's right. it's exhausting to watch and well, I, I, I like i think about what i do in a 24 hour day so like so there'd be 8 weeks of the show where Kiefer Sutherland is just asleep right 
you know, there's the episode where he wakes up and he like takes a shower and he has coffee and he scratches himself and he has some oatmeal and he looks, he looks at the newspaper and grunts and then thinks about what he's going to wear for clothes that day. And then, okay, next week on 24, Kiefer Sutherland is waiting to get a coffee at Dunkin' Donuts and a, and a muffin, but he's in a lot of traffic because the Dunkin' Donuts is busy and there's some, and eventually it gets to the point where he's at work and he's like, my God, there's a bomb. Yeah. Or yeah, or he's, he's- He's driving through like uh, Richmond, Virginia around supper time. It's just like the whole episode is him like, come on. Right. Just listening to the radio with his arm hanging out the Stupid. window, you know, wishing he was so anywhere else on earth. <laughs> 24. <laughs> this week on 24, <laughs> Kiefer Sutherland tries to buy the ripest of the cantaloupes. And he's like shaking them in the shaking them in the market, listening for the seeds to swoosh around. <laughs> All right, so moving on to the right, November, November 7th. the 7th. Okay. November 7th, 2019. Song lyrics have gotten sadder, says researchers who studied 50 years of lyrics at University of Exeter, published in the journal Evolutionary Human Sciences. So as of yeah, Gosh. as of last year, we have discovered that in the last 50 years, song lyrics have just gotten sadder and sadder and sadder. So the state of song lyrics today, when they're not, you know, I don't think you're ready for my jelly, whatever, right? And think about this, the state of song lyrics today, if you listen to like Post Malone or right. whatever. What are we going to have 50 years from now? It's just going to be like bass line. And some dude just wailing, just crying. And you have like, a, you have to bring your own story to the song because just tears and tears and sadness for the next 3.5 minutes. Well, we just covered this a couple of weeks ago with uh, on Worst Song Ever. We had Sugar Sugar by the Archies. I mean, 50 years ago, bubblegum pop was that was the thing, you know? Now it's Xanax. <laughs> I think by, just by the law of averages, you're going to get, you know, the 90s are just going to like weigh everything down. Oh, yeah. The 90s when, when everybody realized it was fun to be sad. Oh, yeah. You know? What I've heard hilariously referred to as shoegazer music. <laughs> as I call the herdader sound. Herdader. <laughs> herdader music. Yes. Yeah, not my favorite decade of, of, of music. And I love the early 2000s either, but I especially dislike most of the 90, 1990s. You know what kills me? For, for that reason. Uh, what, what kills me musically is I've been a rock guy and mostly a prog rock guy most of my life and punk and stuff like that. So, so like 70s and 80s, prog and punk was like the thing. In the 90s, rock music, there's some there's some shining stars here and there, but I prefer hip hop and dance music from the 90s than I than anything else, which is odd because yeah. that's not my that's usually not my favorite genre. But the, the 90s just turned everything around for me. Well, that's when that's when rock sort of went from I mean, rock had already started to evolve towards like super sappy love songs or like music for I'm going to say music for girls and I don't mean that in a sexist way. I mean that the rock and roll's audience mm-hmm hair metal audience was was majority female right. that was who was buying the records right. right so a lot of the songs were sort of geared towards the relationship that the band had with women in the audience and the, then the pendulum swung way the other way courtesy of kurt cobain and then it was like we're all gonna die you know and it never really climbed out of that like even today when i hear please do not email the show and threaten to kill me but like when i hear alice in chains or pearl jam or any of the other bands from that era Tweetly does not endorse one genre of music over another. Please do not at us. <laughs> you know, it's just, it's just, I just find it so. Bleh. 
Yeah, that's the only description I have of it. It's just, <laughs> bleh, like, what would you say if you were going to nominate? Because I already know my answer. I just I, I picked my answer out when I was eleven years old. What would what uh, would you think is the most depressing song ever written? Do you have a, Do you have a, a choice? The most depressing song ever written. It has to be the Man in the Box by Alice in Chains. Oh, wow. The song makes me want to go and listen to Barbie Girl by Aqua Ooh. over and over. Oh, future uh, worst song ever, Hall of Famer. Yeah. Um, so. My song is a song called Bluer Than Blue by Michael Johnson. Oh. Yep. The lyrics of the song paint a picture. The girl is left. He's, he's singing to the girl. He's saying, you know, now that you're gone, I can watch more TV. I got more time to myself. I can catch up on my reading. And then the chorus hits. He says, I really should be glad, but I'm bluer than blue, sadder than sad. You're the only light this empty room has ever had. Life without you is going to be bluer than blue. Oh, my glob. (laughs) The guy needs some friends to come over and be like, come on. We're going. We're gonna go to Taco Bell, yep. and then we're gonna go. We're gonna go to this to the nightclub down the street where they have that like dollar fifty drafts, and we're gonna sit there and listen to terrible music on their jukebox, and and you cry it out over your peanuts. You know what? You if know. that was you, if that was you playing that song, I'd be. I'd come over there. I was like, "Come on, Jeff, let's go listen to some Alice in Chains and cheer you up." <laughs> let's, let's go. For, let me let me let me cheer you up. Here's Jeremy by yeah. Pearl Jam. Let me cheer you up. Oh, I, get those toes i see them toes are tapping where's that smile come on come on turn that frown upside down let's listen to the smashing pumpkins so so yeah again so that doesn't surprise me and like i said in 50 years it probably they probably won't even be able to produce the study because the scientists who have to study it are all going to commit mass suicide 50 years from now there's going to be an ai of casey case it's like all right and the number one song this week <laughs> Inescapable Void of Sorrow by everyone. This is called Dial-Up Modem in a Minor Key. <laughs> a, a common thing with like ghost hunters and stuff like that, there is a science behind it that there is a vibration. It's you know, in, inaudible to the human ear. And uh, it actually causes a feeling of dread and certain... It's like the brown note. Yeah. And yeah, and certain electrical wirings can actually, you know, when they short, so to speak, they can actually produce that noise. So you could be in a house and the wiring is producing that inaudible noise, but your sensories can pick up on it and you get that feeling of dread. That's going to be the number huh. one song in the country in 50 years. <laughs> <laughs> That's the song that my water heater was playing on Sunday this night. It's called Faulty Wiring. Boom. You're not going to have hot water for five to seven business days and possibly a weekend. All right. Let's move on to the 8th. (laughs) November 8th, possibly the greatest PlayStation slash Xbox slash Wii slash whatever video game is released and becomes a phenomenal giant worldwide success. 2005, November 8th, Guitar Hero is released. Yeah. You too can play along with songs made famous by such artists as Boston, More Than a Feeling, Message in a Bottle. By the police. I think Sh- Frankenstein by the Edward Winter. I think Strutter and, by and Kiss was on that first thousands one. Thousands yeah. more. Right. But that first that first one. And you know, um, Guitar Hero had some success, the first one, but Guitar Hero two 
is where the the, the dam just broke right open. My God, that you know that led to the expansion packs, yep. right, for the eighties. Yeah, and, there was another one there, the eighties, and then there was like then they had uh, certain ones that was just one band. I know Van Halen had one, Metallica had one, right, and then uh, the company that produced. Guitar Hero, which I think was put out by Activision, but the developing company, they split into two. And then they formed right. Harmonix, which put out right. Rock Band. I think what happened was the company that put out Guitar Hero was bought by Activision. Okay, that's right. And then when Activision started to monkey around with the formula for, for Guitar Hero and Guitar Hero 3, or as I call it, the one that killed Guitar Hero off, uh, the group that was in that original company started harmonics and they released rock band to to take some of the terrible gameplay elements that were added to, to guitar hero 3 out mm. like the terrible boss battles which were infuriating right. and the most useless thing ever the ability to create your own music using the controller that no one i've ever met who plays this game has ever even turned it on oh wow i never uh i never even um I never even played uh, that uh, Guitar Hero 3. It was awful. So there's nothing like playing. You know, like you end up, you play like four songs. And remember it used to be like you'd learn four songs and then you play a show, yes. right? So this one you'd learn four songs and then you play a show. And then you have to play a show against Slash, who can make it so that your controller gets messed up. Oh. Like, who wants to play this? Like, why do I want to do this? Or that you, if you do a certain thing, you can mess up Slash's play? Like, what? why am I do I just want to play this song, dude. I just want to play like... Sweet Child of Mine. Good song, by the yeah. way. I just want to play that. I don't want Slash to like reach over and break my guitar. You know? Screw you, Slash. Digital Slash. Yeah. But a couple of weeks ago, we brought up Van Halen 3, remember? Yes, I yep. remember. And I was talking about how the band Extreme started out on the basement tapes on MTV. Yep. Now, there was another band that was on the basement tapes. Uh, they were out of Boston, and they were called Tribe. And they had a song called Outside, which ended up as a bonus track on uh, the first Rock Band game. And my God, that song is phenomenal. And I was like, why wasn't this band famous? And it's like, well, one of the guys in the band ended up being the programmer for, um, you know, for Guitar Hero and then subsequently Rock Band. And well, at oh, least wow. you get to hear the song now. Yeah. And uh, yeah, you want to wow. hear a cool song. Yeah. Go look that one up. A link in description. Great song. I'll definitely do that. Very cool. Awesome. All right. Well, that brings us to the end of our days and brings us to the days of our birth. These were the days of our birth. All right. Celebrity birthdays. Uh, Celebrity speaking birthdays. of rock bands, November 2nd, 1963, is the birthday of Bobby Dahl, uh, better known as Bobby Dahl. Uh, the bass player for the rock band from the 80s, Poison. Right. His name is Bobby Dahl, and he's better known as Bobby Dahl. Yeah, not the, <laughs> not the craw, the craw. <laughs> so <laughs> um, the reason why I mentioned him is because I want to name drop like a son of a bitch. Bobby Dahl has a okay. daughter named Zoe, and Zoe has an ex-boyfriend named James Costa, and James Costa is the composer of the Twibbly theme song. Hey, He's also that. my godchild, yeah. Um, wow. He, he was dating the daughter of the bass player from Poison. So, yeah, wow. he used to go hang out at Bobby Dahl's house all the time. No, that's yeah, cool. That's really cool. That's very cool. All right, next. Nice. All right, November 3rd, 1946, Tom Savini, the actor and special effects maverick, uh, is born. Known primarily for his work on stuff like the 
Dawn of the Dead. He killed Kevin Bacon. <laughs> he did kill yeah. Kevin Bacon in, in Friday the yeah, 13th. Yeah, he did the special effects of the first Friday the 13th movie, and then they brought him yep. back again for part four. Part four, yeah. He also uh, acted in uh, Bordello of Blood and some of the other more recent sort of horror films where he, he both acted and did special effects work. He's an amazing, amazing guy, and you can find fantastic interviews with him on online where he talks not only about the craft but about horror movies in general and, and, and stuff. Interesting dude. I know somebody that worked with him briefly, and so cool. do you, me. <laughs> um Yes. Whenever I first started in the in the haunted house business, Tom Savini was a consultant uh, for designing our haunted houses. He did a lot of uh, he did, you know he helped out design a couple of the rooms. Uh, at the time, I was used to Tom Savini with like the '70s style haircut and the mustache, like you see him in uh, Dawn of the Dead. He's the in the motorcycle gang. So I'm standing next to this dude with a you know who's a little shorter than I uh, a little shorter than I am. He's got long hair and a ponytail and a goatee. The boss says, uh, you know, for the first couple of weeks, we're going to be having uh, Tom Savini is going to be working with us. Say hi, Tom. And then a guy standing right next to me waves his hand at everybody. So I was standing right next to Tom Savini. Yeah. Oh, that's so funny. And we were all standing in a circle uh, talking with Tom. Everybody's bringing up all these different movies that he made. And he's he's talking a little bit about it. And then I blurred out. Mm -hmm. I go, Maniac. Which, you know, not not his best effort. Not and he no. just looks at me like his face kind of drops. He goes, yeah, my big claim to fame. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Also, uh, speaking of monster movies, right? Uh, November 3rd, still the same day. Yep. 1954 is birthday of uh, my p- particular favorite giant monster, uh, Godzilla. Wow. As known in Japan, Gojira. Happy birthday. Um, Yes, in the film directed by Ishiro Honda. Uh, moving on to the 4th, November the 4th, 1961, the karate kid himself, Ralph Macchio. Sweet the leg. Yep. Who Sweet went the on, leg. Who went on to do such other great things. Uh, he, well, he was a karate kid, right? He was, uh, he was a in part kid. two. He was, also, he was a karate kid he part was, two. <laughs> he was a karate kid part two and part three. And, and the very popular YouTube series, Cobra Kai. Based on uh, most, the Karate Kid, right? Yes, based, yeah. it, he actually plays the same character uh, as he does in the Karate Kid movies. Uh, but he was also in Crossroads, which was the Karate Kid with guitars. Yes. And uh, Steve Vai. And Steve Vai, yep. And he was also in The Outsiders. Let's let's be fair. <laughs> yep, moving on to the fifth. Who do we got? November 5th, 1968. Uh, Bill's favorite actor in the whole wide world, Sam Rockwell. Absolutely my favorite actor. That guy could do no wrong. Do you have a, do you have a favorite? Oh, so hard to nail it down. Today, I mean, my, my answer could change by the time this airs. But today, I'm going to go and say that his best acting job was uh, as George W. Bush in in Vice. Okay. I think, I thought he was phenomenal. He, he nailed it. He nailed yeah, it. Nailed. It's like, I'm looking at him, I'm like, that's Sam Rockwell. But all I saw was was George W. Bush. I thought he was fantastic. Also, nice. my also my friend John Garcia is in that movie. So there's a oh. enough. I'm name dropping like a son of a bitch. You're dropping more names than a, a Vanity Fair cutout puzzle. <laughs> yeah, uh, my friend John was an extra in that movie, but he's got a nice close up right at the beginning. Oh, cool. My my favorite of his is is Moon, where he's the only character in the whole film, 
other than a vo- an off-camera voice for Kevin Spacey, and it's one of the best uh, recent science fiction films that I've ever seen. Uh, I've been I've been to, I've been told to watch that. Yeah, excellent, excellent film. Yep. Next up, we go from my boy crush Sam Rockwell to one of my girl crushes, November the sixth, nineteen eighty-eight. Emma Stone, what a beautiful girl! Stone, she is very pretty, and a fantastic actress too. Loved yep. her in the in the Spider-Man reboot. Yep, she was really good in Birdman too. Not Birdman 2, but Birdman also, I should say. Right. Yeah, everything she's been in has been, like, top-notch. And so. e- Yeah, Easy A is such a great movie that she did. Yep. And her and uh, and she was also great in Superbad. I think what makes but, her so attractive is that she seems very likable mm-hmm. and approachable. You know what I mean? Like, she's yep. drop-dead gorgeous, but she doesn't, she, she doesn't come across as superficial at all. You know what I mean? She right. just seems like she's kind of like just just a girl, you know? Yep. Moving on to the November 7th. November 7th. What do you got? November 7th, 1960, Tommy Thayer, the most recent guitarist for Kiss and continue one of the one of the multiple replacements for for erstwhile guitarist Ace Frehley. Don't get me wrong. The guy's a phenomenal guitar player, a work ethic. Like I've read the books and, and saw all the interviews and stuff like that. I'm a huge Kiss fan. He's got a work ethic like no other. But let's call uh, you know uh, a space ace a space ace. He is the luckiest man in show business to land that gig because Tommy Thayer. Tommy Thayer started out in a band called Black and Blue, and Black and Blue yeah. I couldn't name a single song by, and the only reason why I know their name is they were the first band that was signed under the very short-lived Simmons Records. So they, he was actually under the employ of Gene Simmons back in the 80s when he was in Black and Blue. Later, he became Kiss's guitar tech, and he's a huge Kiss fan, so he knows all the songs. So whenever they did the reunion tour, Ace Frehley is notoriously late all the time. Uh, there was one show that he was, he literally showed up like within 40 minutes of going on stage. And they weren't going to wait anymore. And they actually got Tommy Thayer dressed up as Ace to go out on stage because they were going to go. They were going to do the show with or without Ace. You know, they got a whole audience out there. Right, 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 right. You know, they're not going to mess around. And Ace just walks in. He goes, oh, oh, hi, Tommy. You know, that was the thing. Like he was ready to be Ace's replacement. Uh, he was like the, what do they call that? The understudy for Ace Frehley for a long time. Or as we could call him, the replacement. Acement. The replacement. Very good. See that? See what I did there? You're clever. All right. And closing out the uh, the week here on November yes. the 8th, 1431. Going all the way back to 1431, Bill. Who was yep. born on 1431? Uh, 1431. I'm going to try out my singing chops here from the Guar album Scum Dogs in the Universe. A little oh. a little ditty called Vlad, Vlad, Vlad the Impaler, Vlad, Vlad. He could have been he a sailor. He could have been a tailor, but he's Vlad. Vlad, Vlad the Impaler. Could have been a sailor. Could have been a whaler. He turned out to be Norman Mailer. Yes. Vlad the Impaler, the inspiration for a character later to be known as Count Dracula. Yes. And ironically enough, mm-hmm. also born on November 8th in 1847 is the man who would make that connection, Bram Stoker, the author of Dracula. So oh, go figure. Ooh. And a final joke, 
I have eaten between 1,431 and 1,847 bowls of Count Chocula, which is only peripherally related to Count Dracula. <laughs> also related to Vlad the Impaler. All right. So if we are done with these segments and we are Uh-oh. done with the celebrity birthdays. You're going to ask me a question, aren't you? No, no, no. I'm, I'm thinking that it must be time for... Worst song ever. All right, so uh, what is our contender this week for the, me, the worst song ever? Let me take you all the way back. So this is be just this just this songs are starting to get to be the most saddest songs ever since the year 1990. And if you would have turned on the radio, gone into a store, probably had dreams, you heard this on this week and for the next like 16 weeks for one. When I play a dope melody, anything less than the best is a felony. Love it or leave it, you better gain weight. You better hit bulls out of kid, don't play. If there was a problem, yo, I'll solve it. Check out the hook while my DJ revolves it. Oh no, Ice Ice Baby. Alright, you remember what I said a couple of minutes ago about... 1990s hip hop and uh, dance music being much better. Ba- I take it back. I take it all Not back. Really <laughs> For starting uh, in 1991, hip hop was was much better. Yeah, wow. Ice Ice Baby by Vanilla and, and that's Ice. That's still the best selling hip hop album of all time. It sold a million you billion. Shut billion your albums. filthy mouth. Is that's it? True. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Yep. I might be wrong. I believe that song was a B side. Yes, it's the B-side to the single Play That Funky Music. All right, so he did a cover of Play That Funky Music by... Wild Cherry. Wild Cherry, oh goodness. Who remembers them? Hey, their greatest hits album is here. It's got one song on it. (laughs) Their greatest hit album is here. So Vanilla Ice, it was kind of like a big, huge cultural phenomenon. I remember in the North Dartmouth Mall where we hung out, there was the big arcade over there called the Dream Machine, right? True. And I remember like walking in those front doors, and there was like uh, you know the the whatever the hot video game was right in the front, and there was this kid that was playing video games there. His hair was like, you know, tight shaved around the side and kind of spiky up at the top, which was like the look at the time. But he had three dimensionally shaved into his head it said vanilla ice going from ear around the back of his head to the other ear i was like yep. wow that's uh that's pretty high commitment for somebody with one song on the radio you got to consider at the time right he was like the mr negative version of mc hammer like yes. right down to the style <laughs> of music to the clothes that he wore to the dance style that he did everything that he did was modeled kind of on mc hammer it just got eaten up, became incredibly, incredibly popular. I remember buying that. Well, I didn't buy the tape, but I was with a friend who bought that tape when we were in Boston <laughs> together. It's for a friend of mine. Yeah. No, I like he literally bought it for our ride to Boston because he's like, oh, I got to get it. I heard this song. It's amazing. It's because that hook from Under Pressure is in there. Because right. Play That Funky Music is a terrible song. Have you listened to it? It's awful. But Ice Ice Baby, because it has that hook from the Queen and David Bowie song Under Pressure, which cause some legal problems down the road is so recognizable. And that song is so beloved and so tied to MTV that it just snatched people right up. If you go and you read along with the lyrics to ice ice baby, you will not be any smarter for the time that you spend reading them. But, and there's no reason lyrically why it should have been a hit, but that do, 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 that they just made a little alteration to just set that hook, like a set that hook, like a treble hook in a bluefish mouth. And famously, I like I remember seeing the interview and now it's like everywhere because of the Internet and stuff like that, where he's like straight faced 
saying, no, no, it, it, it's different. This goes, do, 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 do. And ours goes, do, 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 Right. Right. With a straight face, he says it's it. It's completely, yeah. completely different song. Absolutely, completely different. You know, and that, and that sort of, that sort of uh, style of, of uh, what's the phrase I'm going to use here? Lifting and reusing material. Yeah. Another one of our birthday boys that we could have picked this week. So back on November fourth, uh, Puff Sean Puffy Combs was born, and he's oh yeah, ended up mastering that art and turning it into a whole career of production. He made a whole career out of it. Yeah. So I have a trivia question kind of about Vanilla Ice. Okay. Uh, one of my favorite hip-hop bands from the 90s is a band called Third Bass. You remember them? Yes, I do. Yep. And they had a song called Pop Goes the Weasel, which was about uh, about fake rappers or what they called fake rappers. Yep. And at the end of the video, somebody who is dressed up like Vanilla Ice comes strutting down out of, you know, down a staircase and MC Surge and Pete Nice beat the holy hell out of him with baseball bats. Yep. Do and you know who played Vanilla Ice cuz it's somebody famous? I do indeed. That was Mr. Henry Rollins. Mr. Henry Rollins. And uh wrapping up the show is the answer to our trivia question. Uh, our trivia question at the beginning of the show was in the movie, The Man with Two Brains, starring Steve Martin, he falls in love with a brain in a jar, Anne Mahelmahay, uh, who was voiced by... I'm going to go out on a limb. All right, oh, go ahead. Okay. Take a guess. I'm going to go out on a limb, and I'm going to say, was voiced by Vlad the Impaler. It was not Vlad the Impaler. Oh, wait, 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 wait. I'm going to change my answer. Okay. Emma Stone. It was not Emma Stone. She was not born yet. Um, oh, it was voiced by Ralph Macchio. <laughs> nope. It was voiced by Sissy Spacek, actually. Oh, of course. The coal miner's daughter herself. Yep. There she is. Yes. So the coal miner's daughter and brain in a jar. All right. So that's a wrap for this week. Uh, have a great week, everybody. Say good night, Jeff. Good night, Jeff. See you all next time. Have a great right. week. Bye guys. A special thanks to James Costa for our theme music. Find us or message us on Facebook and Instagram at Twibly or T-W-W-W-B-L-Y. Subscribe if you haven't already and tell your friends. They probably need a cool podcast to listen to as well. And if you don't like this week's episode, there'll be one next week and it'll probably be better. <laughs>